Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. The topic today is anti-money laundering, and we're speaking with Ross Delston, an attorney and a consultant and the head of GlobalAML.com. Ross, thanks so much for joining me today. Tom, thank you for having me. Ross, tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience with anti-money laundering. Well, I, it all started in the year 2000 when the International Monetary Fund, which at that time was my largest client, decided that they wanted to get more heavily into the AML space. And um, what that turned into was... Uh, starting later in 2000, working full-time on anti-money laundering issues. Uh, it's continued for the last eight years. And specifically at the IMF, what I was doing was two things. First of all, doing assessments of offshore financial centers. That's using the FATF recommendations to assess countries' compliance and writing a report. Um, and then the other thing I was doing was writing laws, anti-money laundering and anti-terrorism laws for countries. So that's what I did for uh, a number of years, and I left the IMF to become a consultant uh, and started working with primarily with multinational financial institutions to help them improve their AML programs and policies. So I have this this early warning system that um, basically means that if I if I read a policy or procedure, talk to an AML BSA compliance officer, sometimes I can tell within a minute or two whether they are doing things correctly. That's a good service to have. It is. It's uh, it's not always helpful because. Uh, it's a little bit like knowing when you go into the restaurant how the food is, but you still have to eat there. <laughs> so um, sometimes you'd rather not know. So there, there are little things that uh, I've discovered over the years, uh, terminology, uh, use of terminology by, by people in the space. I mean, a good example is a, um, this was a, a hedge fund administrator who was uh, doing work for hedge funds uh, in the Cayman Islands, and this is, but it's an American company. And we were talking about the fact that hedge funds were not covered by U.S. AML rules. They're still not. And this uh, administrator said to me, well, U.S. rules should be the same as Cayman Islands. And I said to him, you're right, they should be the same. Unfortunately, they're not. Each country has different requirements. There's an incredible amount of misinformation and disinformation in the AML space that still persists to this day. So, Ross, you've been in the field for a number of years now. And the topic is certainly prevalent today in conversations. What are some of the top anti-money laundering trends that you're seeing now? Well, Tom, it's an interesting question when you talk about trends, particularly in a, a post-subprime era, an era where uh, banks and broker-dealers are really hurting when it comes to budgetary pressures. And uh, unfortunately, the regulators are not letting up. So 
one one of the issues that I warn clients about is that even though regulators would like to uh, to take a lighter hand, they're they're really not able to, and therefore the pressures to comply will not only continue but will continue to increase. Uh, and one of the reasons is that whether it's banks or broker-dealers or, or mutual funds, uh, that there's a sense that the regulators have that people have had enough time. Companies have had enough time to figure out compliance. There, there's kind of an informal grace period at the beginning. Uh, that That's gone. Uh, so, for example, a good example would be in the uh, in the case of the E-Trade uh, enforcement action uh, that, that was recently announced, the SEC took a very hard line and, uh, and, and imposed a fairly substantial fine for failure to do something very basic. Uh, there's a sense that institutions have had enough time to figure it out and therefore the regulators are going to get they're going to be firm that, that, that really things have to be done correctly. Um, and, and that, it, it's not a trend in the sense that it's a typical trend, but I would be careful. There's a lot of feeling in the, in the financial institutions industry that the regulators will let up because of all the other financial pressures that, that regulate institutions, banks, broker-dealers are under. Um, I'm not seeing that. Uh, I asked the head of FINRA whether she was going to take this into account. This was a conversation after a presentation she made. Uh, was she going to take into account the, the problems in the industry in doing AML exams? And, and she was emphatic in saying that's just not possible. So trend is that the, the top trend is that the trends continue. Uh, the secondary trend is if there's another terrorist event, whether it's in the U.S. or in a country close to the U.S., uh, in the EU, for example, then you're going to see another ramp up, not just in anti-terrorism efforts, but also in anti-money laundering. They, they go hand in hand. And then more specific trends. Um, I see that, that uh, trade-based money laundering is a greater emphasis. The regulators are looking at it more closely. So is the Financial Action Task Force. And this is using exports and imports as a way of moving money as opposed to using the financial sector. So that's a definite trend. Um, I think those would be the, the big issues. Ross, let me ask you a little bit more about trade-based money laundering. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and why it's a specific threat to financial institutions? Well, the main reason that financial institutions, and particularly banks, should be concerned about it is that it uh, comes, comes into trade finance. Banks uh, typically finance exports and imports through letters of credit, through loans and guarantees. And the, the banking regulators in particular, even though there's no 
U.S. law that singles out trade finance or trade-based money laundering and no FATF recommendation that singles it out. The regulators, through the exam manual, are starting to get very, very specific and asking about, for example, whether the OFAC screening is being done against every party named in an export finance, trade finance transaction. Are the banks looking at invoices and bills of lading to see if there's anything suspicious? Are they doing training that is specifically going to trade finance and trade-based money laundering? Are they looking at red flags such as anomalies between what's known about the exporter-importer and the documentation connected to the LC? I mean, sometimes they're just things that don't make sense. Why are these briefcases costing so much? Why are they taking up so much space in a container? Most of the time, it's very, very hard to detect. So even though the red flags are available, the exam manual lists them, FATF lists them, they're not necessarily all that useful to banks. So a definite area that's problematic. Okay, you covered the red flags. Are those sort of the biggest red flags in terms of trade-based money laundering? Are there other things that people should be looking for? Well, it's unfortunate, but the ones that are identified are often so general. I mean, an example is a customer doing business in a high-risk jurisdiction. Well, sure, that could be a problem. We all view the former Soviet Union as being high-risk. But if you read the State Department report, the International Narcotics Control Strategy Report, INCSR, it classifies the U.S. as a high-risk jurisdiction, specifically for money laundering, and puts the U.S. in the same category as the Ukraine and Afghanistan. Wow. So what does that tell you? In other words, on the one hand, the red flag is customers doing business in high-risk jurisdictions. On the other hand, the U.S. is a high-risk jurisdiction. Not all that helpful. Well, given that, Ross, sort of the red flags can be sort of tough to distinguish. Is it possible for banks and financial institutions to effectively detect trade-based money laundering? I think that it's possible on the margins for them to do it. I think if there are things in the documentation where there are obvious discrepancies, where something's whited out or crossed out, where there are too many amendments to LCs, sure, they can figure that out. But if there are discrepancies in the actual shipment of the goods, in the container itself, in the price of commodities, very tough, practically impossible. And what I'm proposing in an article and some recent presentations is that this responsibility be given not to banks primarily, but primarily to the exporters and importers themselves and to the shippers and the freight forwarders and the companies that actually move the freight, because they might see it. The sad fact is that less than 5% 
of the containers entering the U.S. from other countries. Less than 5% of those containers uh, are inspected. And that's just a very, very low number. What it means is if somebody wants to launder money or, heaven forbid, wants to to move the, uh, the basic uh, uh, precursor chemicals or biological material or nuclear material that could be used in a terrorist event, uh, then their odds are very good when it comes to to trade-based activities. And that's, that's well known by the bad guys. So I think the responsibility should be put on industrial companies, on the, the sectors that actually move the goods, rather than banks that are typically many steps removed from the goods themselves. Ross, you make some interesting points here in talking about the threats, the economic conditions, and then the regulatory pressures, which aren't going to ease. In this environment, how do you see financial institutions dealing with it all? Well, there are some things they can do. And, and lest you think I am, I am touting services that I provide, the, the, the biggest single area is something that I don't do at all, which is to, to look at the alerts generated by transaction monitoring systems. This is not a service I provide, but a service that I recommend to clients that they, that they look at very seriously. And that is 95% of alerts generated by automated systems, 95% typically are considered false positives. That's an extraordinarily high number. And that 95% number comes from the vendors themselves. Uh, I put this number out on the ACAMS listserv. I'm a member of ACAMS. And no one disagreed with me except for somebody who said, well, actually, it's worse than that. It's 98%. Uh, so what that means is when this automated system generates an alert that something is potentially suspicious or unusual and therefore needs to be looked at, that the overwhelming odds are against it. And yet the regulators say, justifiably, to the banks and to the broker-dealers and to the mutual funds and to everyone covered, the money services businesses, what they say is you've got to follow up on these alerts and you've got to document that you followed up on these alerts because there could be something hidden in there. So the way that's an enormous cost for financial institutions to just to keep up with the alerts. So my suggestion is hire a consultant. Don't do this inside. Go outside. Hire a consultant and find somebody who can help you fine-tune that system. You may have had the system in place for years, but to fine-tune the system so you can get that false positive number down to a reasonable level. That would be the single biggest uh, step that I think needs to be taken. And then, of course, training, although it's an additional cost, can result in additional efficiency if employees are better trained, they can do a better job. Uh, sometimes the training can be done in a brown bag lunch. It can be informal. I'm not talking about big fancy conferences that are enormously expensive. Um, and then the other thing is, gee whiz, if you 
are unlucky enough to get caught by a regulator, you're going to pay an enormous amount, not just in the fines, but in the cost of defense, hiring a big, a big ticket law firm, and the cost of remediation, which are sometimes multiples of a fine. You can be fined a million dollars, and yet you can spend a couple of million dollars between lawyers and remediation. I think it's cheaper, call me old-fashioned, I think it's cheaper to spend $100,000 up front and try to avoid that and get a clean bill of health from regulators uh, so that that never happens. Now, great point. Now, we've seen some big headlines this year. We've seen some big fines. But then there have been the stories such as the Governor Spitzer case. So people are talking about anti-money laundering, and, and the, the field is getting a lot of attention. For people who are interested in, in breaking in to the anti-money laundering field, what are some career opportunities? It's a very good question. Certainly, the, 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 the banks and, and financial institutions are always looking for compliance people. Uh, but the, there are other, other areas as well. There are a number of government agencies that are staffing up. For example, the IRS has 360 examiners, probably needs 10 times that, doesn't have the budget, but is continuing to staff up, and they're responsible for uh, examining on-site examinations of MSPs. They're responsible for, uh, what else, uh, gambling casinos, jewelers, insurance companies. That's a great way to break into the into the industry. And then there's ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Division of the Department of Homeland Security, and there's FinCEN itself, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Uh, unfortunately, FinCEN has uh, a fairly high turnover, but that creates opportunities. Um, I've helped young people get into FinCEN, and they've had really interesting careers. So. I wouldn't eliminate the government sector in addition to the private sector. I guess that's my main point. Good thoughts. Ross, one last question for you. If you could offer just a single piece of advice for institutions, again, that are feeling the pinch of the economy and the sting of money launderers, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I think it's, it comes down to efficiency. It's, it's, it's a word that's overused, but... Uh, just have to find a way to be more focused. Um, one way might be to do, to really do a serious risk assessment. I talk to a lot of, an awful lot of institutions that haven't done a risk assessment at all. In the banking field, the examiners, if they show up and don't find one, will actually write it. But why does that help you? I mean, forgetting about the regulatory sting, why does that help you in terms of, of, of the budgetary pressures, and the answer is because the anti-money laundering programs, policies, procedures are supposed to be risk-based, and if you haven't identified the risks, then you can't target them, and if you're not targeting them, you may be spending too much money in areas that are not, not core areas for your financial institution. So a risk assessment should be used as a way of targeting your overall AML program. Well said. Ross, I appreciate your time and your insights today. Thank you very much. Tom, thank you. We've been talking with Ross Delston, 
His website is globalaml.com. Again, the topic has been anti-money laundering. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.